strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And tonight, I'm going to talk to you about a ghost town. Ooh. So a lot of images probably come to your mind when you think of a ghost town. For me, I think of the ghost towns of like the West. I think of like abandoned brothels, general stores, saloons, you know, wooden plank sidewalks. One of those um, rolling, what is a it? Tumbleweed. Yeah, a tumbleweed. <laughs> yeah, like, you know what I mean? Like, that's just, that's the way it's always going to be in my head when I think of a ghost town. What you probably don't think of is how a modern day ghost town would ever come to be. That is what I'm going to talk to you about tonight. The modern day ghost town of Centralia, Pennsylvania. Oh, it's close. It is quite close, actually. So you might have heard of this town. And if you Google photos of it, you might recognize it as the inspiration for the Silent Hill movie. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I think I I think I crept into a window. No. No? There's no windows? There's no houses left. Oh, okay. I remember going to this town, mm-hmm. I don't know, 20 years ago. This is like Lancaster area. Gotcha. It's a little bit further than you. Right. It's a little further than you think. I mean, it's close, but. I just got really excited. I was like, oh my goodness, I was there. This town is full of roads that lead to nowhere. No people. Smoke billowing out of large sinkholes and crevices and through the cemeteries. The set for a horror movie or maybe even the thriller video. What it is <gasps> is creepy, creepy, creepy. It is not the set for the thriller video. Oh, my God. <laughs> but it looks like it. If you Google it, I, I so promise. Excited. No, if you Google it, it looks, you know, like Night of the Living Dead. What's it called, Dan? Centralia. Centralia, Pennsylvania, once a thriving community with as many as 2,000 residents, now has a population of less than 10. How, you might ask, did this happen? Well, I'm going to tell you. But first, I'm going to tell you about the history of the town. Because after all, we are a history podcast. And this town is a ghost. And I love to tell a ghost's story. So you told me to look up pictures. Mm-hmm. Did you Did you look up pictures? Yes, I did. Did you see the penis trail? Sure did. Be prepared for the penis trail. I'm not going to talk about the penis trail. It's just a graffiti highway. Yeah. And like, yeah. Centralia sits in the heart of the state of Pennsylvania, in coal country. This land was originally sold by Native Americans in 1749. The land itself passed hands several times. People knew that the area was rich in anthracite coal. But at the time... This area was so remote and cut off that there was no real way to get the coal out of the area. I'm actually concerned on how much the Native Americans got for it. 749 pounds. But then the person that they sold it to actually ended up going bankrupt and it ended up in the hands of the state. So it's there was never like some great profit that was made off of it from right off of the Native Americans back. So it was it took a like a good hundred years before it ever made any money. And it went through like four or five different people's hands. All right. Before it finally ended up in like a mining company's hands. Mm -hmm. Anthracite coal, often referred to as hard coal, is a hard, compact variety of coal. It has the highest carbon content, the fewest impurities, and the highest energy density of all types of coal, and is the highest ranking of all coals. So essentially, this coal is worth a lot of money. It's fucking coal. It's fancy coal. This isn't like, this isn't charcoal. This is no bullshit, right? This is legit, like, fossil fuels. This has, like, crystallized (laughs) membranes, and they're all, like, jagged edges. Yeah, and they're all shiny. shiny. Yeah. Yes, they're shiny. Hey, cheers. Air cheers. Cheers. Ching. Air cheers. 
1832, a man named Jonathan Faust moved to the area and opened the Bull's Head Tavern in what was called Roaring Creek Township. This gave the town its very first name, Bull's Head, with Faust as its founder. In 1842, Centralia's land was bought by the Locust Mountain Coal and Iron Company. Alexander Ray, a mining engineer, moved his family in and began planning a village, laying out the streets and lots for development. Ray named this town Centerville, but in 1865, he had to change it to Centralia because the post office already had a Centerville in another part of another county. <laughs> so, whoops. So he gets there, he's like, oh, we're going to call it Centerville. And they're like, oh, you can't. There's already a Centerville. Try again. How, how'd they get Centralia? It's kind of like Centerville. It's central. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Literally the least creative, how I imagine I'm just that thinking happening. of like six drunk guys in a room being like, let's rename this town. I vote for Centralia. It's probably not too far off from how that went down. So the Mine Run Railroad was built in 1854 to transport coal out of the valley. So now we have the town. Centralia exists. We have the mines. And we have the means for the mining industry to take hold, which, of course, it does. The area and the entire community is centered around the mining industry with miners, their families, and those industries that would support the community. Oh, the excitement. I mean, stop yourself. I know I'm killing you with how awesome the story is. Excitement. The development of a mining town, everyone. Yay. No, but thinking like the fam was like, this is is our time. Yeah, man. We got this. Brand new home. Because everything is brand new. They're building their homes as they are like, it's... Yeah, it's a little, it's a whole community designed by a mining company, right? It is, it's essentially like um, Back to the Future, like how they designed like the neighborhood except around a mine Yes, in the 1850s. Now, we'll take a fun little side quest Mm. because who would I be if I didn't go off on a tangent? I feel like it would be tantamount to being a big fat liar if I did not tell you the story of the Molly Maguires. So if you look up Centralia... You will not get past the story of the Molly Maguires. It's impossible. They've made a movie about it. It's like a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Sean Connery was in it. It's Love it's stuff. Sean Connery. So, faced with the prospect of starvation during the Great Potato Famine, millions of Irish immigrated to America, where a large concentration settled in the anthracite coal region of Pennsylvania in search of work. There, they accepted mostly physically demanding and dangerous mining jobs. The men and their families were forced to live in overcrowded, company-owned housing, buying goods from company-owned shops, and visiting company-owned doctors. And in many cases, at the end of the month, they actually owed their employers money. Oh, fuck that. Super fucked up. And then the Civil War broke out. And a lot of these miners were drafted to be in the Union Army. And they're like, this is a rich man's war. We are not getting involved. Is a bunch of bullshit, and they began to rebel. Good for them. There were pieces of paper posted upon different supervisors' doors, and they were called coffin notices that were basically posted by this group, and they threatened death. So this these were allegedly penned by this group known as the Molly Maguires, which are an Irish secret society that surrounds labor. If you look into it, it's all about like organizing labor workers and basically fighting for fair treatment. I love how it's a woman's name. 
Right. So this is so if you look at it, that's kind of what it, the whole story is about. So basically, they put these coffin notices on supervisors and scabs doors. If you don't know what a scab is, a scab is a person who is willing to fill the role of um, a person when they're on strike. A filler. But into the 1870s, the working conditions worsened and the violence escalated. In all, 24 mine foremen and supervisors were assassinated. They were assassinated. Yes. So this is an area of crazy violence. Like there's just... In Pennsylvania? Literally, little coal mining town... Fucking people are just getting killed left and right. So in 1873, Franklin B. Gowan, who was president of the Reading Railroad, hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Pinkerton. Of course. I mean, how come every... (laughs) You just can't talk about mining without talking about a Pinkerton. I love a Pinkerton. I just love how uh, the old-timey names are just so much fun. So it's like, this is probably three hours from us. It's not far. Right? And... It sounds like we're in I probably Nevada. It the way I was that like going up to I don't know. I've been all up to Maine, so I have no idea. Is it too far? So it's just not on a major highway. So like for there's like kind of two major highways when you think about did Pennsylvania. We, did, did we, oh, there's eighty we, and then there's Pennsylvania Turnpike. Yeah, yeah. It's like right smack in the middle. Did we drive past it on our way to Tennessee? We may have seen an exit for a highway that went that direction, mm. but it's sort of in the middle between gotcha. 80 and Pennsylvania Turnpike. It's in the crotch. So it is in the mountains. Like it is it's in, there. in Pennsylvania. It is not on an interstate. So basically we have, you know, the president of the Reading Railroad, Gowan, who is hiring the Pinkerton Detective Agency. <laughs> So he's hiring them to come in and do like a secret ops mission. Uh, he wants them to oh, infiltrate undercover the Molly Maguires because they're organizing a union and they're becoming an impediment to the increasing profits from the mines and the railroads. So basically they're a thorn in the side of the man, right? So they got to get to the bottom of it. So they hired the Pinkertons to get in there. And using the alias James McKenna, a native Irishman by the name of James McParlin spent two and a half years living alongside the coal miners and gaining their trust. Undercover. Like deep undercover. Like this is like dark he's, ops. He's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like a narc. Yeah. He's like deep, deep yeah, cover. Isn't it? Yeah. Cool. So despite the conflict of interest, though, Gowan, who was also the head of the Reading Railroad, is also serving as the chief prosecutor. Oh, no, no, no. During the subsequent trials. So based entirely on their mole's information, 20 men are sentenced to death, 10 of whom are executed on June 21st of 1877, which in the area is known as Black Tuesday. So though these people were tried and executed, there is still some debate if the Molly Maguires were actually Involved. Involved and actually working in this area. Because they had been very prominent in Ireland, but is this just a scapegoating? But that's right. But that's so, their job. They they try not to be just like out in the open. Yes. They, they're they're so, a hidden society of some sort, right? Yeah, it's a secret society. Yeah. But now looking back at the trials and the executions, um, there really wasn't enough evidence 
to have actually tried, found these people guilty, and executed them. So there's no evidence of them ever actually really existing. Right. Or I mean, yeah, it's like it's almost like just this big myth. Right, and it's like, but that's God only knows who killed these people. But how how are myths? It could have been this Gowan person. How are myths made? They're made because someone said something about something that might have been true. Because in Ireland, this this organization was very prominent. So once they see like this sort of labor uprising, they're like, ah, must be the Molly Maguires. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) but in 1979. More than 100 years after his hanging, John Kehoe, who was supposedly the king of the Molly Maguires, was granted a full pardon by the state of Pennsylvania. Because, like, historically looking back at these trials, it's like they're huge miscarriages of justice. There's no way that these people, if tried in a modern court, would would see no execution. Yeah, I know. So. Those poor people, though. Oh my God. I know. I mean, it's a bad time. I mean, these companies are really taking advantage of these workers. Like, it, I'm sorry. Insanely. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit dark, but does it say how they're executed? I mean, I, I'm sure it did. I just didn't go too far down that rabbit During hole. During that time, what is it, hanging or injection? There wouldn't have been an injection yet. It was probably so hanging. hanging. Yeah. I would say it was hanging. With the violence of the 19th century in the rear view, Centralia's dependence on mining did not end. By 1890... It was home to over 2,700 people, most of them miners and their families. And even with the stock market crash and the Great Depression, the coal industry slowed down, but not enough to kill the town. So that is like probably the wildest and most interesting story that you'll ever hear about Centralia. If you look it up, you're going to see Molly Maguire's Molly Maguire's. That's, that's it's a, it's a pretty it's a pretty crazy story. story. Yeah. But that's not really the story that I was trying to tell. I just felt like I couldn't leave it out, right? No, if it's, you're it's, talk it's about, part of the history of the town. So. And the town is gone, right? It's like it was there and now it's gone. So it has a finite history. It's like unfair. So would you say it had not to a, mention it. Um, at, at its lowest point, it had about 10 residents? I think Currently, I believe there are nine. Nine. Today. Oh, man. Someone passed. So. so sorry. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends. So for me, it's, you know. Trying to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to. (laughs) Podcasts on yeah, podcast your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. Nice. So that's the weirdest, wildest story that you'll hear about Centralia until you hit the year of 1962. In 1962, Centralia had a problem. The problem was trash. <laughs> Whose problem isn't trash? I mean, it seems to have all started with the idea that, like, you could just dump shit anywhere. Hmm. And the town's like, hey, guys, we've got to do better. Like, well, you can't just be dumping fu- trash The everywhere. nine of them, how much 
trash can they accumulate? No, no, this is in the 60s. Oh, okay. In the 60s, there are thousands. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, my bad. So we're in the 1960s. They have a big problem with their trash. And they decide that they're going to use an abandoned mine pit. And they're going to convert that into a garbage dump. Oh, no. And trash was a big issue for them. Because of all these unregulated dumps, the city council had to solve the problem. And they solved it by creating the central city dump. But the central city dump came with a lot of odors and rats. And the landfill was 300 feet wide and 75 feet long and was made to be about 50 feet deep where it ran adjacent to a strip mine. How far close was this to, like, the actual town? um, I mean, it's close. Yeah. It's close. So the strip mine had been cleared in 1935. And it ran adjacent to and was just right next to the Odd Fellows Cemetery. Hello. There had recently been eight illegal dumps spread throughout Centralia. But the council's intention was to create this landfill that they did using this particular area to stop the illegal dumping. Um, because the state regulations were really cracking down on all of the illegal dumping and being like, you know, basically gross. Yeah. Um, I, I don't really know. I didn't look too much into the dumping There's laws. No I just know that There's basically, no yeah. like, it's like, the city was forced to, like, get their shit together. Hey, we need one central dump. We're, we choose yeah. this place. You know, there we go. use your imagination. There is a thousand people in a coal mine town that right. has a lot of garbage. And the people who own the cemetery are like, this sucks because now there's a landfill next to the cemetery. But they also understand that the illegal dumping sucks as well. So they sort of acquiesce to the idea of having the landfill next to the cemetery. But it's also bad for a cemetery, though, because when they run out of room in a cemetery, they have nowhere else to go. Right. And the smell is terrible. And people who want to visit their families. And, and there's a church there. Vermin and, and rodents and diseases. And gross. Pollution. Yeah. Gross. So in May of 1962, the city council meets and they discuss the issue, which uh, the very at the time is very sensitive and time sensitive in nature because the Memorial Day holiday is fast approaching and they're going to have a parade. Oh, and they God don't want the terrible the smell of the landfill during the parade. So like we've got to figure this out. So they need <laughs> a fast solution to their stinky landfill problem. A lot of flowers. All the flowers. I mean, I we can only look back in history and hope. I mean, that they back had done then that. They didn't have Lysol spray. So they didn't they go with a... Lysol spray. So their answer that they came up with was swift. And it was fast moving. It was fire. <laughs> they decided that they would just burn the trash in the landfill. Oh no! <laughs> that was not legal per se. Um, so if you look back at the city council minutes, they actually don't talk about the actual solution. But they do say how they're going to hire five firefighters to five? be involved. Just five? Yeah. So a fire was ignited to clean the dump on May 27th of 1962. Right before. And oh. water was used to douse the flames that night. However, the next morning, the flames were still visible. Using hoses hooked up from one of the main streets, another attempt was made to douse the fire. Another flare-up came the following week on June 4th. And calls the Centralia Fire Company to once again come and douse the fire with hoses. It's like it's a buried fire at this point. Yeah, and, and so comes like, to surface. so then a bulldozer comes and they stir it up and then douse the flames. So like trying That's to smart. Like, okay, right? Yeah. They're trying to figure it out. Yeah. So a few days later, a hole as wide as fifteen feet and several feet was found at the base of the north wall of the pit. 
So this area that they had chose apparently had been lined to be the landfill. Like it wasn't, so things didn't seep into the groundwater or whatnot. So they prepped it beforehand? Yeah, they had lined it. So, I mean, they, they made a landfill. But they noticed a giant hole. And that hole. Sinkhole. And this hole that they found was probably the cause for the mine fire. It was new air. So basically there was a hole in the landfill that went into one of the old abandoned mines. And just because the mine was abandoned doesn't mean that it was completely mined Mm -hmm. out. So now there's fire and exposure to air. And now it's running underground through mines. So underneath this landfill is a path is like a complete labyrinth, old mines. Evidence shows that despite their efforts to douse the fire, the landfill continued to burn. And on July 2nd, someone complained of foul odors and smoldering trash and coal. Um, Even then, Centralia City Council still allowed dumping of garbage into the pit. So the landfill is still going. Fire's there. Learn. People are like, hey, man, like I smell burning. Like there's ash in the air. Like something's going on. They just keep putting more trash on it. A member of the city council contacted the president of the Independent Miners, Breakerman, and Truckers Union and asked them to come inspect the situation in Centralia. He came and evaluated the events and decided that he was going to get the Department of Mines and Mineral Industries involved. And he was like, hey, I think if we just like dig everything up around here, we could probably put the fire out. It's going to cost like a hundred bucks, right? We can take care of it. So they're like, great. That works out great for us. So over the course of the weeks and months that had passed since the Memorial Day trash fire debacle, they had noticed more and more wisps of smoke that were emanating out of the walls of the landfill pit. And they decided to call in a mine inspector. And his name was Art Joyce. And so he shows up and he decides that he's going to test for gas. And he finds seeping gas out of the large holes in the pit. And he notices that they contain high levels of carbon monoxide, which is typical of coal mine fires. Mm -hmm. The city council sends a letter to the Lehigh Valley Coal Company and tells them, hey, and basically tells them, hey, we've got a mine on fire here, but completely covers up how it happened. And in the letter, the borough described the starting of the fire as it being of unknown origin during a period of unusually hot weather. (laughs) <laughs> sure. So at this point, they're they're begging for help. They realize that the mine is on fire. It is burning underground beneath the city, and they need help. So they're going to the state to ask for help digging out this fire. It's just a continuous fire underground. Yes. That is in old coal mines. So there's so much room. Mm-hmm. There's little mazes that they that can well yeah and i mean a lot of uh, there are so many mines beneath this area that they a lot of them aren't even necessarily charted because there are people who have just gone in there to mine on their own so the idea of putting out the fire becomes incredibly complicated because to put out a fire you have to smother it Mm -hmm. and they don't know all the different areas that it's getting air from yeah right well because a lot of mines unfortunately some mines are different but most have two entrances. Yeah, at least. Yeah, at least. At least. Yeah. You know, and there's mines littering this area. 
So they decide they want to, like, just have somebody come and dig up the fire and, like, look around and just get to the bottom of it. And this guy comes and he's like, hey, I will take care of this free of charge as long as I get to keep any of the coal that I find along the way. And they're like, sure, go for it, dude. Please just go for it. But that idea was completely rejected. And they're like, absolutely not. Like, this belongs to the mining company. We're not going to give it up. Like, not possible. So at this point, state mine inspectors are showing up in Centralia pretty regularly. And they're finding lethal levels of carbon monoxide in Centralia's coal mines. So on August 9th of 1962... All the Centralia area mines are closed. At this point, the community kicks into high gear. And they try to save the industry that basically fuels the town. So with the help of the Department of Mines and Mineral Industries, multiple attempts are made to extinguish the fire. They try to excavate around the landfill to contain the fire so that it would just burn out. Like, if we just maybe if we just dig around and contain it, it'll just burn itself out. But they were forbidden to drill in an attempt to figure out where the edges of the fire were. So they don't know where the fire is actually going to stop. So they can excavate till the fucking cows come home. But if they don't know where it ends, then they're just adding fuel consistently as they dig the earth up. Mm -hmm. So basically every time they dig up another area that there's fire, they're just adding fuel and it's moving forward. So the second attempt is made during the winter of 1962. And this involved sending a bath of rocks and water into the mine. Steam it. To just like, we're just going to send a ton of rocks and cold water in and we're just going to put it out. Um, But unfortunately, it was one of the coldest and snowiest winters on record. So equipment froze, the water pipes froze, and they this plan failed as well. Finally, 1963, the state abandoned any hope of extinguishing the fire believing that it just wasn't large scale enough for them to really be concerned about. And the town itself wasn't that big. So they just decided to let it go. It's a big fucking deal. So as the years went on, the ground beneath the city itself became hotter and hotter, reaching over 900 degrees Fahrenheit in some locations. Smoke poured from sinkholes and gas-filled basements. Residents started to report health problems, and homes began to tilt. Even the dead could not rest in peace, said one person who lived there. The graves in the town's two cemeteries are believed to have dropped into the abyss and the fire that rages below them. Now, the fire keeps burning for decades. Then, in 1979, gas station owner and mayor, Coddington, it was John, maybe it was John. I didn't write his first name, weirdly. Anyway, where are you home, John? Mayor John Coddington mm-hmm. inserted a dipstick into the fuel tank at his gas station. Here, <laughs> a dipstick. Um, inserted the dipstick into the fuel tank to measure how much fuel he had left. And then he kind of felt something strange. And he was like, feels really hot. Why does it feel so hot? So he inserted a thermometer. And the tank was 172 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, boy. A tank full of gasoline was 172 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, boy. In 1980, people began to complain about low oxygen levels and elevated carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide levels. Then, in 1981, the earth opened. A sinkhole four feet wide by 150 feet deep opened beneath the feet of 12-year-old Todd Domboski. Oh, no. He clung to a tree root until his cousin, 14-year-old Eric Wolfgang, saved his life by pulling him out of the hole. 
The plume of hot steam billowing from the hole was measured to contain a lethal dose of carbon monoxide. Although there was physical and visible evidence of the fire, residents in Centralia were bitterly divided over the question of whether or not the fire posed any direct threat to the town. Oh, get out, people. In 1983, the U.S. Congress allocated more than $42 million to relocate the people of Centralia. So they were given the option yes. to relocate. Yes. So they are – and nearly all of the residents accepted the government's buyout offers. So they bought their houses. Mm-hmm. Um, more than 1,000 people moved out of the town and 500 structures were demolished. So essentially they were like, we are burying this town. No one's going to come back here to live because the ground is not safe. And that's that. Uh, by 1990, the census was recorded to be 63. In 1992, Pennsylvania governor invoked the eminent domain law and seized all of the property in the borough, condemning all of the buildings within. And subsequently, all of the people, all the residents who were there tried to counter suit, but they lost. And in 2002, the U.S. Postal Service discontinued Centralia's zip code. And only 16 homes remained by 2006. And that number was reduced to 11 by 2009 and only 5 by 2010. Almost all of the homes in Centralia were demolished. What remains are five homes with about nine or ten people living in them. So there is a few articles uh, written by someone who actually does live there. If you are interested, you can hear stories of essentially the horror of growing up there and watching cats die in front of you as they fell into sinkholes or watching deer get stuck in sinkholes and having steam coming out of their mouths. You know, real horror movie bullshit. Um, But there are some people who just will not leave. That's their home and they're not going to go and they have fought and they have won the right to stay there till they die. But they're absolutely not allowed to pass their land on to any heirs. So they can stay till they die, but that's that. They're going to die in that house. Of course they are. Yeah. That house I mean, is going to be in a sinkhole and it's going to fall in the ground 150 feet. Maybe, gonna... maybe not. I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, these I people know. have probably been there for a while. So they're just like, I don't I don't believe it. I don't buy it. Seriously? <laughs> well, they're just, they think that theirs is going to be exempt. Like if it's not gone yet, why would it go now? So, but the area does see a fair amount of visitors. Gawkers mostly. Gone to see the town that disappeared, and maybe the people that still remain. Those who live there complain that tourists take pieces of their homes as souvenirs and consistently graffiti the remaining homes, buildings, and roads. But upon a hill, one building remains, bright and promising. A white building with a blue dome. It is the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, a Ukrainian Catholic church. It was found to be built on solid bedrock and therefore deemed safe. So it's allowed to stay there. Services are still held there every Sunday, when many former Centralia residents return for those services. Experts say that the fire could burn for another hundred years. And this is one of only 38 known active mining fires in the state of Pennsylvania. Only one out of 38, you said? Yes. That is the story of a modern-day ghost town, a community with a storied history devoured by fire. Just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. 
You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring. <laughs>